you just kind of turn something on its head. Instead of going to the Bible and looking for examples of how we should, you know, respond to the political leadership or who are the parties that are in power, you're saying we can just, we can look at Jesus and what Jesus did. And so that, that example is kind of scary because Jesus was crucified. Welcome, everyone, to the Faith Recovery Podcast, where three failed pastors, Alex, Kent, and Nathan, are trying to explore the meaning of the gospel and how it applies in our day. We're in a series called Faith That Works, and the episode today, The Miraculous Eight Ball, where we're going to discuss the gospel as the perennial dynamic source of guidance versus other behavioral matrices. Uh, what's this eight ball metaphor that Nathan has? Right. I had one of those in the eighties. Did you? Yeah. Is yeah. this the thing you shook? Was it? Oh, and yeah. It gave you the, it gave you it gave you an answer. Yeah. It was like yes, no, maybe, uh, fuzzy, like <laughs> right, yeah, unclear. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was kind of an early chat bot. It was before mm. there were chat bots. It was you know you you couldn't afford to go to a fortune teller. You, just used the magic eight ball. Why was there it was a magic eight, eight why ball. Why wasn't it an eight ball though? Why was it an eight ball? I don't know. It was eight black ball. and round. Yeah, I guess it's number an eight. eight ball. So the eight the eight ball is is it wins the game. You know, once you knock in, if if you do it in the right order, well, if you do it in the right order, uh, then right. that's game over. So that's success, victory. I don't know. Um, I don't. Yeah. So yeah. I think you're into so that. Why the eight ball it, metaphor? I have no idea. Well. So we're saying the gospel is the magic eight ball? Miraculous. The miraculous. We don't use the word magic around here. Wait, the miraculous so, eight ball. So I, I can just open the Bible and find answers to all life's questions? No, definitely not. <laughs> Treating the Bible that yeah. way is actually part of the problem. Right. I mean, unless you want to, you know, you may be, should I boil this kid in its mother's milk? Don't do there it. There you go. Right. <laughs> In case you wanted to know, uh, yeah. not your children, <laughs> not your children, but your goats, right? Children. Your your baby goats. Um, you know, if you're if you're on the fence, you're uncertain as to whether to boil a baby goat in its mother's milk. You can find it, um, but you probably won't. It probably won't drop open to that. And I think there's only two instances. If it does oh. drop open to that, then you probably should pay attention. And are you advocating for looking for answers from the Bible by just opening the Bible and and whatever it drops open to, then that's your answer? Is well, it miraculous I'm not, I'm in that not sense? It, it probably isn't the best. Right. If it does happen to drop open to something that says, Kent, don't do it, then you'll probably should do something about that. But um, the gospel, you know, and we've talked about this previously. I don't know if it's on any of the ones they're currently published, but it is not the same as the Bible. The gospel is the word of God. Most of the time when we see the phrase word of God in the New Testament is referring to that oral message that was being proclaimed about Jesus having come as Messiah, dying for our sins, rising again, and the notion that he's coming back to judge the world. So I would say that's the gospel. In essence, it's articulated in various ways based on the circumstance and the audience, the occasion, the intention. But those basic facts comprise what is the message of God. So the, the word logos, it's often used 
translated word. When Americans hear the phrase word of God, what oh, they think pops the Bible. up in your brain? Right? Yeah. The Bible. We need the word of God. It's like, sure. We need to read the Bible more. Yeah. yeah. And, and even if you say the gospel in our, our setting, like we are this morning, how does the gospel, the source of guidance, people will misunderstand that to us to think that we are referring to the New Testament or the gospels, the right. four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but we're not. We aren't. And the early apostles weren't. So when uh, Peter says that he goes to Isaiah 40 and he talks about that, that I think it's Isaiah 40, you guys look it up, but uh, you guys, I mean, listeners, um, not you two, you're you guys are failed pastors. I don't I, trust I, in anything. I didn't bring say. my Bible. <laughs> <laughs> Peter quotes from Isaiah and he says that all people are like grass and their deeds or their accomplishments are like the flower of the grass and it withers and dies. But the word of the Lord abides forever is what Isaiah said. Now, Peter takes that and he applies it. He says, you've been born again of eternal seed. This sperm is the word of God. And, but then Peter says, and that is the word that was preached to you. It is this preaching, not a bound leather text or a litany of laws, but an announcement. That's what preaching is. It's not religious teaching. It is heralding, announcing events that have taken place, making an announcement. That's what preaching is. And so he's saying that the announcement is the word of God that Isaiah was referring to. That is what is going to make a person eternal. It's going to become part of their composition, their nature. And when it does that, then that person becomes the child of the gospel, the word and of God's word. And so they, they have something about them that's going to endure according to Peter. Right. And so the gospel message causes us to be born again, makes us new. And after that, we read the Bible, right? To get our guidance for life. Isn't no. that right? Isn't no, that how it works? Right. That's what we've been taught. <laughs> but here's how I... And the various uh, teachings in scripture found in many places, let's just say, focus on, let's just focus for a minute on the New Testament. And you find the different places where the apostles or the writers of the New Testament are addressing problems that people face, sins, right. problems, conflicts, and whatever is said there is what we must do. And that's how we get our guidance after we're born again. Isn't that right? That's incorrect. Oh, kids. tell us then that's what incorrect. is correct. You knew that already. Come on, man. Set me up. <laughs> Sorry. To... Uh, no, that is... It, it's correct and it's not. I My tendency is to defer to the apostles because I think they're smarter than I am. But I don't see the New Testament as, and I don't think that the writers of the New Testament saw that as um, holy writ on the same level as the Old Testament. Now, I know Peter in Second Peter, I think, speaks of Paul's letters as being like the other scriptures but it doesn't seem that necessarily means he is saying that they are on the same order, but that he's acknowledging they have a level of authority and influence in the churches. Scriptures just means writings. And even then, which ones were canon and which ones weren't were up for interpretation. Almost every New Testament author 
seems to allude to a book that was lost to antiquity for 500 years, 400 years, the book of Enoch, the first book of Enoch. And so Jude quotes from it directly. Peter alludes to it. Jesus seems to allude to it in the gospels. So if you were to ask them, what are the scriptures? And they say, well, the book of Enoch. Now, if we're counting on saying, well, God has given us a book and this book is perfect and it dictates to us his will. And we read the book and we find out what it says and we do it. If that is the nature of our religion, then we're probably in trouble because not only is, was the book of Enoch lost to us for a long time, and we still don't exactly know what it said in its original language. Most of what we have is from an Ethiopian language that's lost to antiquity and has only recently been, you know, we've been able to try to piece it together. And then New Testament alludes to, refers to other letters that we don't have. It doesn't seem when you read Paul that he thinks he's writing scripture for all people for all time. He seems to be writing very much to the, to the recipient of the letter. So what do we do? What do we do with the New Testament? And, is it is it a useless rag? I mean, what do we do? Well, and okay, so you're you're arguing that it doesn't seem they didn't seem to have a consciousness of writing scripture, but I think maybe another point you would want to make is that he's consciously applying the gospel to their lives and that he explicitly states in various places that it's the gospel that that saves us and guides us in life. Right. And so his own teaching actually forbids our using the New Testament in the way that we tend to use well, it. Well, and back to the original metaphor, the, the eight ball, I, I think a lot of people that would be listening to this, if they were raised in the church, they would be saying, I was taught that I should be going to the Bible to find answers for what I should do in life. Yeah. And so now, now we're saying, well, actually Paul doesn't even claim that he he's taking this gospel message and saying, Hey, Corinthians, because of of what Christ did and who he is now to you, your lives are supposed to be different. Right. So we should be going to the gospel. We should be going to this, this event and this story and this message about Jesus Christ. Drawing and we should be looking for to how that. we should live. Yeah. And right. of course we're going to, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to learn that from, from the Bible. Right. And it's, and it's a faith proposition, but, but does that surprise us? It, if I tell you, this story about something that happened 2,000 years ago contains within it all the wisdom you will need to conduct your life in a way that's pleasing to God. If I tell you that, that's going to, I think, evoke, at least in some people, some tension. They're going to wonder, can that possibly be true? And, and yet that very incredulity speaks to the divine origin of the gospel. Because if it does provide that kind of wisdom, a reliable wisdom, against what all of our inclinations would be, if it does it in spite of that, number one, it, it argues against human authorship. Because if we struggle to accept that that could possibly be true, who would have conceived to create something so basic, so simple, and claim for it such a, a vast, broad, timeless application. Who, who would have ever thought to do that? You don't find that anywhere else. Nobody in antiquity tells us one simple set of events that take place over three days and says, now the rest of human history can unfold and can look to these three days 
for guidance. Um, it, it would just be insane to suggest such a thing. And, and if it works, then it, it vindicates the claim of divine origin and purpose. And which is, gets back to the reason for this series that the functionality, the utility of the gospel argues for its validity. Mm -hmm. Are we going to demonstrate today that we it are. works? We are. And, and we're going to get to some of, of this. So you'd mentioned about how Paul would have sent us to the gospel and he does. And that's, I think what we miss about read when we read the new Testament, every other religious movement is they want to reserve the right to speak ex cathedra. If you can think about religious movements since the New Testament, Muhammad doesn't just come out of the cave with the Quran. He, he writes it on palm leaves and saddles and parchment and anything he has in front of him. He writes it over the period of about 20 years. Sometimes the Quran says stuff like, when you come to the prophet's house to eat, don't arrive early, don't look at his wife, and don't stick around after you're done eating. That's totally written. Okay. Now, does that sound situational? Does that sound personal? Does it sound more ad hoc and someone using the right of ex cathedra to tell other people, don't annoy me, mm -hmm. leave me alone. It, it's so funny because it says the, the prophet is embarrassed to tell you these things, but Allah speaks truth. <laughs> Paul is this God puppet. And so you get Roman Catholicism and the church retains the right of ex cathedra that the Pope can, is the vicar of Christ. And that should he say some arbitrary thing, you have to do it. Mormonism, Mormon church, they've got their own book, but everybody reserves the right to kind of put addenda on, on this holy writ. Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the evangelical church or the Protestant church. More broadly, I think would say that it's the apostles, mm -hmm. the writers of the New Testament, and more broadly, the whole Bible. Sure, but they don't. They don't. The, that is uh, the, final the apostles word. don't speak that way when they write. Uh, Paul says, "I think I have the Holy Spirit in saying this. This sounds good to me." And uh, in First Corinthians seven, mm -hmm. and giving them advice about marriage, he's, he he equivocates quite a bit there. And then in Galatians, he speaks of going and presenting his gospel before the apostles in Jerusalem for their approval. He says, lest I am doing all of this in vain. It suggests that even when it came to that, he was open to input. So Paul didn't have the sense that he was infallible in his speech. We don't get that from the New Testament. There's never a claim made. You get to Luke's works and he's like, man, I've done a ton of research. I've interviewed people. This is the fruit of my labor. He doesn't say, and God came to me and he said, write this down. I mean, you don't see that in the new Testament anywhere, except the book of revelation. You're right. But they do all make claims to an, an event that right. happened. And, and so when Paul hears about the church that is divided and Paul says, Jesus spoke in my ear and said, you guys are idiots. He didn't say that. And he said, well, is Christ divided for you? Was Paul crucified for you? Where is he getting his information? What's his source material? The gospel. Right. And he says, they're having lawsuits. They're suing one another. 
Well, Jesus, for your sakes, though he was rich, became poor. Isn't it better for you to be defrauded than to go in public and seek counsel from the unredeemed? Where's his, what's his source material, right? Yeah, he's, so he's, he's consulting the gospel for answers to this problem that, they're, yes. that they have. I always think of Philippians 2 where he says, have this mind among yourselves, which, is, which was that of Christ Jesus who gave himself for us, you know, humbled himself. And he's telling us to think about what Christ did and then act accordingly. Right. And, and back to Peter in 1 Peter 1, he says, you're, you're born of this word of God. And then in 1 Peter 2, he applies that word of God. And on through 3, he, he's like, if you're servants, then you should obey your masters because even if you're wrongly accused, because Christ, he didn't defend himself. He was subject to the authorities over him. And, and this gets to the current climate that we have among Christendom, this defiance that Christians tend to have in the public sphere now, that we believe that everything was hijacked by the liberals and that American values are under attack and God would have us to defend Americanism. But what we miss is that that is not the gospel. See, and this is where it goes wrong. When we think we're supposed to obey the Bible, that puts the power back in the hands of human beings because the Bible is a big book and we can go and pick and choose. We can do things that are convenient for us. And because it's such a big book that there is a clergy and there is a laity by default. If you know the original languages, you have time to study it. You've got the cultural background. You can speak with a degree of authority that somebody who is say working 10 hours a day, at a blue collar job will never be able to, they have to trust that you're going to teach them correctly. Even if they read the Bible for themselves, they aren't going to have the resources to really interpret it properly. We have a whole science hermeneutics that is about correctly interpreting the Bible. And I will tell you as somebody who does that for a living, it is time intensive, even if you're crying out to God. Well, and I, I think even in a lot of our, um, evangelical traditions, a lot of time, uh, we put an emphasis on discipleship looks like becoming more literate, becoming more educated in reading the Bible. Right. As if that was the key that unlocks you becoming a better follower of Christ. Mm. Right. And most Christians throughout history have not had the opportunity to do that. Even if they were literate, they didn't have a copy of the scriptures in their own language to resort to. Now, what was the prophecy in Jeremiah about the new covenant? It said, they will all know me and they won't yeah. need to teach one another because they'll all know me. Right. And it, because he's going to write it on their hearts and on their uh -huh. minds and that he's going to forgive their sins in a day. So I, I think even in Jeremiah and also in Ezekiel 36 it has a similar prophecy. There, there is this connection between this new covenant that is not like the one. So it's a qualitatively new covenant. It's not second edition, but it is an entirely different sort of covenant. It's not like the one he gave them in Sinai. So if we assume that Matthew through Revelation is the new one, <laughs> that suggests that God got it wrong the first time, that the law was somehow flawed in its contents. And Paul would have never said that. None of us, I think, should say that if we, because a lot of this stands on the previous set of scriptures that we have and early proclaimers of the gospel resorted to those scriptures 
And so the covenant is not like the one and it is different in that it is written on our hearts. And how does that function? Well, it does away with that clergy laity distinction because everybody has it on their heart. Now I can't teach you because you already have it. First John two says as much, it says, you don't need anyone to teach you because that, which you heard from the beginning remains in you. And it is true. Mm -hmm. uh, he was talking about the Bible, right? Cause you sat down and heard the whole Bible at the <laughs> and I memorized and fully it. understood it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have a copy of all 1300 pages exactly in your heart. We, we don't have that. But we can't have the gospel in our heart. Right. And, I we mean, can't the, have the simple message of the gospel yes. in our heart. Yeah. The operating. they kind of lay this, this kind of left-handed critique toward, uh, Judaism because of all of the debates and the sectarianism that was a part of first century Judaism. How odd that here we are 2000 denominations later, still fighting and having religious debates. Well, why do we do that? So what you're saying is if I was an uneducated, poor, illiterate person that had no access to even, if I could read, I had no access to even read the Bible that I could receive this message of the gospel of who Christ right. is and what he did. And that would be enough for me to follow him and be a disciple. Absolutely. And it does take away any intermediary. The Think about the author of the Hebrew letter who begins like this, God, who in various times and in various ways spoke to our fathers has in these last days spoken to us by his son. Now, those people had not specifically encountered an angel that talked to them, their relationship with God was all of those various ways and times and all that came down to a book. And so their encounter with God was through a book, but now he's saying God is speaking directly through his son, not through Paul, not through Peter, not through Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, but directly through his son. Now we know Jesus didn't write anything. We could go to the book of revelation and it appears that Jesus wrote that letter, if you will, by agency, but that was probably written after the letter to the Hebrews. <laughs> so he's not referring to that, but he's saying that God is speaking to us, not to somebody to speak to us, but speaking to each of us by his son. Now it doesn't seem likely that each person is receiving specific verbal inspiration from Jesus, though I, I think that's certainly possible through the Holy Spirit. But it seems from what I see in the way that people hear from Jesus in the New Testament that he is speaking through the gospel. So you get down to Hebrews chapter five at the end, and he says, I, I'd like to talk to you about some deeper stuff, but I can't because you're still immature. Why are you immature? Because you haven't read enough, because you didn't study enough, you didn't get original languages and you don't have enough resources in your biblical library. No, he says, because you, you haven't used the word of truth. He says, strong food is for those who by reason of use have trained themselves to tell the difference between good and evil. It was a, say train yourself to study the Bible and get the hermeneutics right. correctly. He's like, you, you have to take this message and learn how to use it in real life. That's exactly. the training, right? 
Yeah. And you're going to get it wrong, just like with anything else you train at. It's riding a bike. You got to get on it. You can read a book about the history of bikes and how bikes work and centripetal force and all that, but none of it's going to make you a rider of bikes. Well, I, I find that ironic then because how, how many of us were, were trained in, in a church environment or with these expectations or message that our training is to learn the Bible and most of us are just learning theory, theoretical implications of the Bible, but we are actually not learning how to live those things out exactly. <laughs> very often or often enough. Right. And it, there is this kind of a hope and a promise that comes with the gospel that if we in faith submit ourselves to the cross, that we in hope will receive the power of the resurrection. So there is a very pragmatic component to this word of God that if it works, you did it right. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think a lot of the young people I know who have defected from the faith or ha have just said, look, this is just a book about historical propositions that are unprovable. Why should I believe this? And man, the, the first people did not see it that way. They are like, go try this. Like the psalmist, taste and see that the Lord is good. Do something in faith. Do something in Jesus' name. See the power and the grace, the provision that floods that vacuum. Discover that this love cannot be crushed by attacks and obstacles and hostility from other people. Find that out for yourself. So when the, this writer says, by reason of use, have their senses trained to discern good and evil, we are learning this wisdom, but we're learning it by trusting the proposition that if I follow in the footsteps of Christ, that the blessings of Christ and the full experience, the fellowship of Christ will be mine as well. Yeah, it makes me think of Jesus somewhere in John 8 there where he says, and this is a paraphrase, he's like, try me on these things that I've been teaching you, and then you'll see that they're true and it will set you free. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So to get back to, I think I jumped off, jumped track, but to get back to this idea recently, this Americanism, Trumpism, and disclaimer, I voted for Trump, I would probably vote for him again. That doesn't have anything to do with my faith. We can talk about that later. But there is no, there is no sense in which that there is a Christian way to be political in this society. That if you take the Bible, and, and so... What do we do if, if we set out to create some conservative political agenda and baptize it? Okay. Then we are very selective in our texts. So here we are. We're in second Chronicles chapter seven, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will only humble themselves and seek my face and I'll heal their land. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans I have for you and all this stuff. You know, we're grabbing these random verses, man, that just, they're not part of our history. They presume a theocracy and none of that is true of us. It's madness. It, it's just not even good hermeneutics. But if we commit to the gospel, I'm not saying that we need to learn better hermeneutics, although we do, but if we commit to the gospel and we say, what does the gospel say about how to be a good citizen in the, in 21st century America today? One of the things it says is he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. Who is that? Right. Well, he was a liberal. <laughs> you know? to, to he was a God-hating liberal. Right, to have this defiance against godless politicians is the antithetical of Jesus. 
Okay? If we want to follow the gospel, our default should be submission in utter trust that, that God is sovereign. You want to know, okay, another thing we go back and find, we go back and find tithing. Guess what's not in the New Testament? Tithing. Do you want to know what the New Testament equivalent of tithing is? According to Paul in Romans 13, it's paying your taxes, not giving a church. Giving a church is never equated to Old Testament tithing. But Paul says, you give to, you pay your taxes because they are offering themselves in liturgos. Liturgos is kind of this worshipful service. It's what the, the Levites did. He's saying that the law enforcement officials and the government officials are set apart to minister righteousness by enforcing laws. And because they're set apart for that, you should support them just as the Jews supported the Levites. And he's speaking of the Roman Empire here. So back, you know, back to some application here, you just kind of turns something on its head. Instead of going to the Bible and looking for examples of how we should, would, should, or could onto the political leadership or who are the parties that are in power, you're saying we can just we can look at Jesus and what Jesus did, and so that that example is kind of scary because Jesus was crucified. He allowed right. himself to be crucified by. So you're you're saying my example is to be crucified by the powers that be? I'm not saying it. Uh, <laughs> Jesus said that no servant is above his master, no student is above his teacher. We think that Christianity is some sort of add some religion and some moralism on top of your affluence. And Jesus is like, okay, well, I guess you and I have nothing in common. That sounds painful. It is. And I think that's why we choose other systems and we can build religions and call them Christianity that don't call for cruciform love or resurrection faith. But the gospel demands that. And so it's not odd or aberrant for us to suffer. And there's plenty of suffering going to go around if we would submit to our employer, to the government, to people in our lives directly, that we can take the lowest place. We can find humiliation. We can confuse other people and, and maybe even lose friends if we just simply try to follow the gospel. I'm not saying that those are things that we want for their own sake, but they are ways that we identify with our master. And it's only through that, that we will become like him. That thank you through the implications of that, that requires a real faith in type of power and authority that I'm not sure works in this world. Right. Right. Because, right. you know, if you're saying I have to lay down my life and somehow through laying down my life for Jesus's sake. God's going to affect change? Like, that sounds crazy. How's that going to change yeah. anything? <laughs> right. And if we had the answer to that, it wouldn't be faith yeah. to the how. Later on, second century, Tertullian is speaking to the Roman officials, and, and he's saying, hey, you can keep killing us if you want, but you need to know that the blood of, of Christians is seed. The more of us you kill, the more of us there will be. Now, how do you really know that, Tertullian, especially if you're one of those that's getting killed? You don't get to see it. But that is that faith. Jesus about himself said that unless a grain of wheat fall to the ground and die, 
it remains alone. And from the perspective of that grain of wheat, well, that's a real faith proposition. But the antithesis is Peter in Matthew 16, where he says, far be it from you, Lord, that won't happen to you. We finally have somebody who's going to get some stuff done. You are essential. Should you die for the will of God, then all will be lost. And what does Jesus call him? What does he say? Remember, Satan. Get right? behind me, Satan. Right. The right. accuser. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or the Don't enemy. Don't know how things work in my kingdom. Right. And, and, but we, we will uh, entertain the notion that we're important, that our contribution matters most or something like that. But we do have to be able to do that. And I digress. All that to say that this strident, defiant, rebellious attitude as applied to the public sphere is not Christian. It is satanic. It is Luciferian. We think it's the right thing to do because we are born of a society built on rebellion. But that is not the gospel. And if we could get back to following the gospel rather than what our pastor says the Bible says, we would probably not be as big of, of a-holes in the world. And frankly, our job is to not smell like turds. The but aroma we do. of Christ. Right. And, <laughs> and yeah, sometimes that's the aroma of death for those who reject it. But it's not just being a jerk. And Christianity has lost so much credibility by this selective application of the Bible. So when Trump was president and... All the evangelicals are lining up behind him and we're all in favor of building the wall and keeping the kids in cages and all that. And, um, we're not in favor. Nobody's in favor of keeping kids in cages. And then, and then so more compassionate Christians are like, read Amos and we were supposed to care for the foreigners. That's an equally inappropriate application of the Bible because Amos is also written to a theocracy and we can't expect the United States of America to be a theocracy. We have to understand that, that justice is the responsibility of the individual Christian and not of a government organization using dollars that are extracted from people unwillingly. So all that to say, I'm not trying to set policy. I'm just saying that on both sides, people will pick a scripture, they'll use it. And it really just foments all of the division and hostility. And if we would just personally say, look, I'm not here to make the world a better place. That is, is presumptuous in and of itself. I'm only here to know him and to know the power of his resurrection, fellowship of his sufferings, be conformed to his death so that it's somehow I might attain to the resurrection from the dead and reach the goal for which he's called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And if you do that, if, if that's, if that's your thinking, then are you suggesting it would lead to a certain uh, course of action on say the the immigration issue absolutely the wall issue absolutely a certain position on it or sure. a certain course of action on it because we're saying yeah. that the the gospel is the miraculous eight ball that is this perennial dynamic source of guidance sure so how so illustrate for us how it would lead you in that yeah. particular case well and the beauty is is it doesn't necessarily have to lead everybody in the same direction uh, romans 14 is this beautiful treatise on christianity and the gospel leading people in opposite directions while they're part of the same fellowship so you don't have to agree with me on every political decision. Some of that is out there in the gray area, and it really doesn't specifically apply to the gospel. So, for instance, 
I think there's a lot of wisdom in building a Southern border wall. As long as we give every undocumented person in the United States immediate amnesty and not citizenship maybe, but legal residency and, and call it good. But that's just what's in the best interest of the United States. For the kingdom's sake, so I don't know how many of the people who advocated for looser immigration policies back in the Trump era actually helped somebody emigrate here. What percentage of everybody who you think is in favor of looser immigration policies actually helped somebody emigrate here personally with their finances, with their reputation, with their future? Well, very few. Okay. Virtually none. So I'm pro-border wall. But I've helped one family get here. I signed a document that said, I'm financially responsible for these people. My family and I, we went with them to the health clinic, helped them get the shots, went with them to all the various websites and, and public buildings and all this stuff. It, it was massively time consuming, but it also was me saying, I am responsible for them. I, I leveraged my own future for their sake. And it wasn't a question of whether I would do that. Because I'm under the gospel. I'm not in this crisis of, should I do this? Because it could be financially catastrophic on one hand. And on the other hand, it could really benefit these people. The, it could be financially catastrophic on one hand just goes away. Here's somebody with a one in a hundred opportunity to come here to find a better life for their family. If I were them, what would I want me to do? There's no question. It's not a debate. I don't have to set up pros and cons because the gospel has already answered the question. So I'm going to leverage whatever I have to help them. I'm here. I'm in their path and I'm willing because the gospel has made me willing. Now, if I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading Proverbs. I'm looking at all this stuff about being prudent with your money and all this. Well, it's not, I'm not going to do it. Or at least I'm going to, I'm going to struggle with it a long time. And, and, um, and now if I, I'm not going to do it, but I'm going to give another hundred dollars a week to the Catholic immigration charities. Now save my conscience. That's not the gospel. The gospel is not comfortable charity at a distance, at least not in every case. Certainly we should have this just general giving drive, but the gospel clearly says, take these people in. I think that's how it applies. Where is the church? Are the resources not there? There's a half a trillion dollars do donated every year by Christians to their church. It seems like some of that money could go to helping immigrants if we really did care about them. If we really saw ourselves as a holy nation, we are the theocracy, not the United States. We should build structures to bring justice into the world. That has been God's longstanding dream since this whole thing started. So why aren't we doing that? Well, because we're not obeying the gospel. We are finding some sort of comfortable American version of religion, calling it Christianity. And then making real jerks of ourselves, turning Christ into a public spectacle by going out in the streets and demanding our rights. And you don't have any. You left them at the foot of the cross. So it matters a lot. And when we now read the New Testament, what we'll find is camaraderie. And commiseration. We'll find the comfort of a society of friends that can relate to us and we can relate to rather than just some authoritarian document.
Well, that's uh, a good illustration. Thank you for that. And we'll deal with the Southern Baptists next week. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening. Can't didn't say that, but we are thankful. Faith Recovery (laughs) Podcast is brought to you by Faith Recovery Podcast, written and produced by Faith Recovery Podcast. And not in in any way endorsed by the SB. Right. (laughs) Or the Republican Party. You can have the Democratic Party. You can can, can quit for my line if you want.